Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. This is Jonathan. This is Ian. <laughs> Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding gems tucked away in other countries and bringing them home, much like England did with most of what's in the British Museum. I would punish you, but at the same time, I was going to make the exact same joke, so... <laughs> I want to say something, but I don't want to offend our British listeners, <laughs> so... Uh, welcome to Gaming on the Frontier. This week we are talking about a game called E-Crime, and it is a French game that has uh, a RPG that has done very well, and they are now making a American version of it. And we have Ian, a uh, uh, an editor for it. Ian, tell us a first your full name and uh, and what is your participation. Uh, with your company. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I guess first things first, uh, since we're going to be talking about it all all evening, um, the game is called A Cream, which, you know, is kind of an artifact of its French heritage because it doesn't look like that at all to a native English speaker. Um, <laughs> thanks, for the, thanks for the correction. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I've, well, I've, I've heard it at least five different ways. There's e-crime, there's ecrime, there's ecrimey. Um, that's a fun one. Um, but it is, in fact, a cream. Um, and it's a game uh, that I've had the pleasure of working on as an editor um, for Open Sesame Games uh, US, North America. We're still figuring out how we want to attend that um, because ultimately uh, we're a sister company of a French company of the same name and founded by the same people uh, just for the uh, English speaking market. Um, and that's actually where the game comes from too. <laughs> so, so this is, this is open. Uh, this is open dash sesame.com is, is where, where your presence is on the internet, right? Yeah. It's open dash sesame.games. I'm simply the the editor for uh, North America. Uh, Roman Del Planck is my um, counterpart across the Atlantic uh, for the for the French division. You know, we work with them. They work with us. We are, we have the same name, um, but we have two very different audiences, and we've had the fun experience of learning um, recently just how different the. Uh, marketing strategy you need for each audience really is well please tell us tell us about that um you know what what is the difference between the european and the american market so from from our experience the, the europeans are actually really open uh to uh new games especially like like as far as the tabletop gaming um scene compared to the united states europe is a 
mecca for smaller uh, publishers and smaller games uh, because they aren't, um, especially in, especially in tabletop role-playing games, although equally so for board games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we, we had the entire Euro game revolution here in the States only like a decade or two ago. Right. And, and, you know, all these board games, you know, tabletop board games came over, but I don't recall seeing uh, any, uh, you know, tabletop RPGs. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted you on the show was because we wanted our listeners to be aware that there was, in fact, a, a French tabletop RPG that was being translated into a, a an English uh, language version of itself. Yeah. Um, and that's actually really exciting because you don't often see it being translated in that direction. A lot of English games get translated into other languages, such as German, French, and Italian. But to see any game from any of those languages translated the other way around, especially not one that's a board game and rather a full-fledged tabletop role-playing game, is actually quite rare. Right. Yeah. It, I, it does I, happen. <laughs> I do have a copy of Fowin, the role-playing game based on the World of Tears books by Philip Jose Farmer. And yeah, it's all in French. There's no move to translate it to, for an English reading audience. So mm-hmm. this is rare, the fact that this is happening and you're going through with all this. And yeah, this this should prove interesting to see for gamers with English and Australian and especially American sensibilities in role-playing to see how this is translated out and say, okay, these concepts we've translated to English. What do you think? And I'm, I'm sure that, that you and your staff and those in Europe will do, you know, a wonderfully fantastic job that nothing gets lost in translation that you were to actually encapsulate everything you're trying to say because there are some things that lost in translation. It's language. Right. It is when I was talking to him at uh, Steampunk Expo here in Atlanta just a couple weeks ago, uh, Ian told us that uh, it wasn't just a matter of correctly translating the words by sentence by sentence. Yeah. It was actually more than that. They had to you know, bring over you know, concepts that were in some ways possibly foreign to Americans. So you were talking yeah. about your marketing, how it was different in America versus over in Europe. So could you yeah. continue that, Ian? Yeah, of course. So ultimately, you need to have an American company. Our European company that we were working with, they're really great at what they do, but it's amazing how segregated the internet truly is. Even if they are English-speaking reviewers, influencers, what have you, if they are predominantly based in Europe and they're audience is predominantly European, and and a lot of this is coming to me secondhand, so take it with a grain of salt, but the, the way the algorithm works and everything's kind of divided, it's very difficult to breach kind of the, the relevance wall, as it were. Like, if you are predominantly known in Europe and blah, 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 and you've got maybe a European Facebook page, or, or your Facebook page only has 90% French people following it, for example, as is the case with our Facebook page currently, and we are currently in the middle of restructuring our entire social media approach. 
it's very difficult to get any kind of other audience uh, to it. So you can't have a single page for your company. You do have to divide it into multiple uh, languages. And of course, that seems kind of common sense, right? But it's 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 just kind of funny um, how it really works in the long run because technically speaking, our European page would be advantageous for your various other European consumers who might want to find the game in English because they don't speak French either. Like Germans, Italians, Romanians, everyone, most gamers who know English or at least enough English to, to be able to read it uh, decently, they're perfectly happy trying a game out and playing it in English as long as they know English and as long as they don't have to learn French or, you know, any other language, of course. Ultimately, even though you could you would have a larger English speaking audience, because ultimately English is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world, you still have to divide your approach between sides of the Atlantic. So that was like lesson number one, learning, learning about that. And so we're currently doing that. And then, of course, you know, it's all about who you know and, of course, how you approach it. People really like going just directly to a page and being able to put in their email and get a, a starter set kind of all over. But our earlier outreach wasn't really doing well because it didn't give people the option. It was more like, hey, you have to do this. You have to do that. And it, it was... There there were a few pitfalls that I'm not even certain about what exactly happened because, again, I wasn't directly in charge of the marketing outreach. But I do know in hindsight that it was like we had one company that kind of did it and then another company that did it. But it's ultimately all down to just differences between differences in approach, differences in mindset, and, of course, differences in, in specialty. I really... I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. No, no, we don't want that either. Okay, we were just uh, interested in, like, you know, uh, how you would market it in America differently than you would market something in Europe. So Europe is really cool in that a lot of the game stores, as far as, like, boots-on-the-ground marketing goes, um, a lot of the game stores are incredibly receptive to new games and things like that. You have large gaming clubs. You have a variety of gaming clubs. Um, you have a thriving in-person uh, culture, uh, more or less, which, at least in my experience, and I might just be an introvert, is not really the case as far as I've run into it here in uh, Indianapolis, where I live. There are few gaming clubs. Most game stores don't really have pickup games of role-playing games. You need to find an established group or go with uh, Pathfinder Society or uh, whatever D&D's got going on, the Adventurers League or whatever that is. Yeah, and that's a change because it used to be that almost all comic stores and game shops used to have at least one or two tables where tabletop RPGs would be going on at least on a, on a weekend basis. Right. And and here, the only one with like kind of an open gaming I can find is, is a single store uh, game preserve out of uh, southern Indianapolis. And, and that's not even necessarily a sure thing. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen any advertisements for like a gaming, a gaming club or Indianapolis gamers or anything. Mm -hmm. I I need to look harder, probably. Uh, yeah. but that's also difficult. Um, yeah. I heard Atlanta has something like that, though. 
Yeah, well, a lot of them are, um, and again, over time they've come and gone, but they're usually associated with universities. You know, it's, uh. not, it's not uncommon for a university to have a gaming club or a fan, or they, or they might, they might, you know, be more like a science fiction and fantasy club, you know, and which might probably have a gaming segment of it. Okay. Um, there are also uh, online. Uh, there's a there's looking for a game dot com, right? And like I said, you know, there are there are some and there's some groups on. Oh, a group. Uh, not not is it groups? Group on groups? I can't remember. Um, but meetup. I'm sorry. There it was meetup. dot yep. uh, com. And uh, that might be associated with or, with or, with an area, um, and there are a few um, a, a few bars and such that specialize in having games. But because there's so much competition between for space between online gaming and by that I mean electronic gaming, you know Xbox and the you know and and just online stuff, people playing these games like uh, uh, pub you know PUBG uh, and um, Oh, uh, Valorant. There's a lot where they have these actual esports uh, and e competitions that go on. Some of the big ones that used to happen in Atlanta. But see, you got these people that are wanting the space for that, and there's no tables left for people who want to do role playing. They'll give a couple of tables for people who want to play some board games, you know, uh, Settlers of Catan and other types of things like that. But actually, getting a dedicated RPG area. Is is very rare these days. Um, uh, the one the one store in Atlanta, uh, which was called the Wasteland, uh, they pretty much kind of like, well, they still exist, but they they, they really shorten their hours as a result of COVID. And uh, they, I think they're not open in the evening, late evenings, but in the afternoons, especially on weekends. So I need to start checking that out as as I and other people start coming out of our shells. In the meantime, here in America, I don't know about over in Europe, we've been doing a lot of gaming with each other over Skype, over Roll20, over these kinds of internet-type apps. Uh, does that happen a lot over in Europe? That one I'll have to ask about um, because okay. because that's kind of like, I'm, I'm sure it does, mm -hmm. right? It has to. Like, I can talk more about what's popular and less about... Uh, you know, how exactly they do it. And I can also say, okay. you know, you can, it's a lot easier to find people in person, but that's also just an effect of Europe's population density. But I'm sure you have plenty of online games happening as well. Okay. Are you planning on having any presence at Gen Con uh, or Dragon Con? There's other big conventions as well, but those are the two most the two that most people are are hear about uh for like 2023 are you having any plans on doing demos there of e-cream oh absolutely the big issue is depending on when we do the uh kickstarter campaign mm -hmm. specifically uh-huh it might be more of a late pledge type of deal if not simply a pre-order type deal at Gen Con Dragon Con because we are hoping to launch the campaign here in May or June should everything go well with the American marketing. So you haven't actually started your Kickstarter yet? No, we've got the pre-launch page up. We're collecting uh, you know, subscribers so people will get notified when we do launch. But the road to Kickstarter has been a tricky one. Um, we have other projects 
up the pipeline. And we are currently like, you know, working on those as well in tandem, but we need to build a rapport with Kickstarter before they let us launch multiple projects at the same time without fulfilling all of them at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of deal. Because Kickstarter wants to know uh, if you can be trusted to fulfill a project, rightfully so. And they've done a great job about making their reputation much greater than it once was um, back in the, the old days of Wild West crowdfunding. Well, how, did you, how do you prove that if you've never produced a game before? Right. So the way they do that is essentially, okay, you can do a Kickstarter, but you can only have one and you can't launch another until this one's been fulfilled. Ah, okay. And then once you fulfill enough, I, we've got the numbers somewhere. It's like around three or so. Once you've fulfilled your, enough and proven that you're, you're serious and capable of, of delivering and producing work, then you can have like two or three simultaneous projects uh, going on at the same time. Like there are a few trusted producers such as like, I think uh, Magpie Games or Free League are really good examples of like places that really rely on the Kickstarter business model um, who, who have that rapport already and are able to have, you know, they're, they're just cranking out several projects every year and it, it's working great for them. And they're really cool projects. Okay. And that's kind of like what we aspire to. All right. Okay, well, before we start digging into your actual game, we did want to ask, you know, how did Ian McClung get get connected up with uh, Ecream and, and your game company? So I've been gaming my whole life. I, I've been a lifelong gamer. It's not like a case where I was bored one day yeah. and just got really into it. You know, even as a kid... Uh, I annoyed my sisters and my parents with wanting to play various board games or what have you. The Most of the money from my high school job went into Magic the Gathering, mm-hmm. I will unfortunately say. You and about a billion other people because that's how much money they made off of that. Uh, <laughs> but going from there, I, I got into... I, it, I, I didn't really get into tabletop role-playing game until I was still in high school. And there were whispers of the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And before that, I had had experience with 3.5, Pathfinder 1, but none of those experiences had ever gone anywhere because, you know, you're teenagers, people flake, things don't really uh, go anywhere. But then I suddenly had a lot of time available with my friends, our our first uh, Christmas break of senior year and we that was the first time we seriously sat down and we played 5e this was this is 2014 it had just come out in in november or whenever but christmas break has it been that long it's been out yeah <laughs> it doesn't seem that <laughs> right? long right no yeah. it's been out for almost a decade now that's, that's why... crazy talk <laughs> yeah and and so we played D every day for the entire two weeks of that break, mm-hmm. we just started and couldn't stop. And it was, it was like magic and nothing. And I keep thinking about that experience as like just this incredible time and all of that. 
no, nothing's ever quite like that first experience with the game, you know, with 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 tabletop role playing in general. Oh, I just get, I understand. Clicked. Yeah, we all understand that. You know, we we you know we all have had our Iron Man uh, gaming sessions that lasted sometimes, you know, for three days straight. You know, sleeping at the table and you know, and our parents calling saying, "Are you still alive?" <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, occasion if you're doing it over someone's house, occasionally someone would like open the door and take a sniff and throw food down at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the magic of, of of that first time. Inevitably, I I find myself homebrewing a lot as the group's designated DM um, for Five E. A lot. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the amount of work. Thinking back on it and having. Being older, wiser, having read Pathfinder 2E in the time since, um, <laughs> it's amazing how much work I had to do to make some things my players wanted to do work. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But it all, you know, it was all really good fun. And from there, you know, college happened. I get a degree in media arts, which just means I can I can use After Effects really good. <laughs> <laughs> Photoshop, all that. You have a really pretty resume, right? Yeah, yeah. If you want me, if you want me to bore you, I can get into how the bulk of it was about how people are affected by media and how media affects people, and you know the relationship between people and the stuff we create. You know, critically looking at that and basically tearing movies apart. Right. Okay. So you got this degree uh, in media studies and such and how did that get you uh hooked up with uh ecreen well the story continues after a stint as a high school art teacher <laughs> you you poor oh, poor man okay, okay that's, the that's really i'm glad i don't have to explain it that's that is really the the preemptive response is all that is necessary to explain my experience in the American public school system. Yeah, I went through it as a student and that was bad enough. But you don't learn whether or not it's for you until you're actually in it. Yeah, That's so so we're, you know, so we really do want to, you know, say that if you're an art teacher in high school, you are a rock star because, you know, you're doing a job that literally most people cannot do. So, you know, more more power to you. Right. Myself included. I yeah. couldn't do it. Yeah. But I did really enjoy substitute teaching. And that's ultimately where the pandemic found me. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it also found me uh, connecting with a lot of people over on the uh, Morkborg discord. The what? Morkborg is this little yellow book that has taken the OSR slash new OSR. Really, it's, it's really more of a new OSR title. Uh, space kind of by storm it didn't happen overnight but like a creeping contagion it has slowly uh seeped uh into everything around and it has mutated and diverged into other games such as cyborg which is a cyberpunk thing and death in space which is like if you played a dark rpg in the alien universe or more recently there was uh Pirate Borg or Frontier Scum, if you like cowboys. It's this really interesting, rules light, design heavy, 
and like really the focus was on short and interesting prose as far as the writing was concerned. So mm. you you take all of those elements together and you have a book that is as much an art object as it is a functional game. We are going to have to do some research on this. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. You're you're welcome. And and yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to plug them because it's a I met a lot of cool people and it's a really cool game made by cool people. The core book, the the original, I should say, before all the permutations came along because of their generous open game license, is just Morkborg, M-O-R-K-B-O-R-G. And uh, let me see here. Reading the back of the book, it is a doom metal album of a game, a spiked flail to the face, rules light, heavy everything else. (laughs) Nice. Okay. I like it. Talk about to the point. <laughs> yes, exactly. And everything is more or less written with that same amount of, of brevity that also belies detail. It gives you just yeah. enough to let your imagination go crazy. And I think that's part of, and I think that's a big part of what made this game uh, so compelling to so many people, myself mm-hmm. included. So mm-hmm. I end up writing a bunch of things for this game. A bunch of my own homebrew content. I made some bosses. I made some classes. I even made black powder weapons rules that were released in a zine by the company that made the game. So there are no official black powder weapons rules, but mine kind of are the closest to that, so to speak. If if I really want to be full of myself um (laughs) people people are gonna have fun and they're gonna do what they like and that's the beauty of it and so you know i have suddenly all this content i've written and i see that this company is looking for someone and i'm like okay here check my stuff out i hear i wrote some things here's some here's some stuff i already sent in an application to be an editor for lancer but they denied me because they had enough people. They still gave me a great, they gave me a great letter of recommendation. Really cool people working behind Lancer. So Lancer <laughs> is a, it, it's, it's, it's the mech RPG. Like it's. Oh, it, oh okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. It, it's, it's, if you, if you like people piloting giant robots, fighting in that giant robots, in those giant robots and having, you know, interpersonal, political, and social drama outside of the robots, it's an incredible system. Um, it's got a really cool, a Star Trek-esque post-scarcity future um, that still manages to have a lot of conflict, and it's it's just incredibly well written. And so, you know, I threw I threw my gauntlet into the ring. I I, I tried to to get on ground zero of of editing that book um after following it from its beta days and they were like no we don't need anyone else sorry um they got a lot of applications but they really liked the work that i did for the uh test or whatever so i had that too in addition to the other stuff i had and so when this company open sesame games was looking for an editor here's here's where the real luck comes in they were hiring they knew I was interested, and I sent it in. 
uh, because I was one of the first people they reached out to because I had prior connections uh, through my uncle. Quite literally nepotism. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know, it's... It, it, Anything to get the foot in the door. It, never, it, never it, be it worked, that. it worked for the president. It's not family. what you know necessarily. It's who you know. There is nothing wrong with that. Just... Yeah. Right. And and that's and, and this is this is the part of how did I get the job that I've been kind of dreading, because it is I did get my foot in the door through my uncle because he is business partners with the man that runs OSG, Isham. Uh-huh. And, and he's 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 incredible. He makes a lot of board games. Great guy. But they knew each other in the 90s. My uncle actually did a lot back in the day in the tabletop space on the side and then he went and became a writer for ubisoft stuff like that uh-huh. and so this is one of those like times where things really came around because you know one of those contacts that he made in the 90s needed a team for this because they had created this idea together of like you know entering the american market you know so they needed a team and so naturally they reach out to to various people that they know as kind of like a first wave and they solicit our resumes. So that's kind of how that went. It was 100% who you know, but also, you know, a little bit family business, a little bit all that. Well, it's not like you weren't qualified. Exactly. Yeah. I was hired because I do have the skills required to do this job and and to do many other aspects Mm. of the job that aren't related directly to editing. Yeah, and you were already known in that section of the business. So, you know, you the, it was easy to see what you could bring to the table. Getting the first intro, you know, like I said one of the first person to contact, that was because of your contacts, but you know, it's not to say that you wouldn't have been in that list anyways. Right. Yeah. And you know, that's the matter of luck, right? Mm-hmm. So much of life comes down to luck and opportunities and whether you take those opportunities or not. And Yeah. Just being in the right place at the right time, yeah. talking to the right people. Luck got you the job. It's the skill that keeps that going. Right. Because right. you have the skills. What What's it saying? You have the tools. You have the talent. That's the hard part. Right. And so, yeah, it's still, it, it, it wasn't just nepotism. It's just you, it, everything just clicked. It was the perfect storm of what you needed. So, yeah, some, sometimes good things do happen to good people. So and we should be happy about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, um, okay. So now that we know something about yourself, okay, we should stop. We should talk about this game. This, this, we should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I got to tell you, now that you've corrected my, uh, my pronunciation, you know, eat cream sounds so very fluffy and, um, and, and, and almost a confectionery. I mean, it's, it yeah, sounds, I mean, some, it sounds like cream. something that everybody would want to have around them, you know, but apparently that's not <laughs> the case. So, uh, why don't you start with your elevator pitch for this game and we'll work our way down to the dread that it actually is. Yeah, so that's kind of where it starts, right? Cream is the name of the game, but it's also the name of the acid that has covered the world. Oh. Yes, this is a steampunk dystopian setting where... Humanity has been forced to retreat to islands, build massive vertical cities, and incredible bridges crisscrossing each other uh, to connect various countries and, and, and cultures. 
All because one fateful day, the seas turned to acid. Uh, that's kind of the the, the background. Um, the game itself is just a 2d6 system, and it uses skills. It's skill-based. I really like it. After after running it quite a bit, it is it's so good. It is a breeze to play, in my opinion. And outside of that, the world's kind of yours. Like, so you know, you got this stuff, this the, this e cream, okay. And you know, w- when we think of acid, we think of something that's in like a jar, you know, and it slushes around when you do things. But from the way you described it, it's almost like a sludge. It it doesn't move. It doesn't like splash. It's just it's almost inert. Right. The the closest. Well, it it could splash. Like the closest um real life analog we have to the texture of the acream, and the way I've most often heard it described is mercury. Oh okay. it is it is an incredibly dense acid that has kind of covered the entire surface of the earth. And while it's deep in some parts, it's shallow in others, it ebbs and flows, the concentrations of its the concentration of it also changes depending on the location. And so some areas might see, you know, a lot more corrosion in a much shorter time than other locations, simply because of natural variations in its concentration. Okay, so when when a cream comes into contact with something that isn't stone, okay, what, you know, what actually happens? It corrodes, it rusts. Most metals will immediately rust. It is, it is more or less entropy manifest. It tears down structures, even even stone ones. It, you know, corrodes all things except for the purest of metals, such as gold. Gold is one of the few things that cannot be corroded by a cream. Everything else, you know, will get if if it's organic. Terrible acid burns. It'll be completely dissolved away and incorporated into it. If you're a person and you get it spilled on your face, that's actually a thing that happens in the meta, in, in the in the framing device of the player book. Um, one of the characters gets his face burnt by the acream. Um, a particular, particularly sadistic metropolite drips a, uh, a little bit of a cream onto his face. And you, it's described how you know, the pain goes through him as as this droplet, you know, makes its way down and then drips to the floor. But as it as it does that, burns away the all the flesh in its path. Mm-hmm. So it's lethal stuff. Yeah. Well, it's just that you had people that were walking around on stilts, okay, in the cream. So that's why I was like, you know, thinking thinking and i assume that these are workmen primarily and stuff like that but it's it's something that you they've learned how to manage they've learned how to you know either they have protective gear that covers them like a basically like a diving helmet you know a suit mm-hmm. or something you know that they can do this but there was a couple of cases where it looked like they were just people wearing just they were like police officers and such and they just had these stilt they were stilt walkers is what they were called in the game. And it just, it just seemed to me like, you know, you'd, if if it was so terribly, if it was easy to splash it on you, 
you know, not if you do a face flop into it, of course you're you're screwed. Okay, but I mean, as long as you don't do that, it seemed like you you could manage it and not worry about you know killing yourself. It wasn't like the the worst possible job. It was just something that sometimes had to be done because they were in warfare when they would when people on the ground would. I mean, would attack, you know, uh, circle around and attack people that were up on those, uh, uh, what they call traverses. They were more like aqueducts, you know, raised roadways that connected these giant cities together. You know, it was it would seem like a suicide mission to do that unless, like I said, the, the, the cream wasn't quite as ductile as it might seem it would be. Right. And that's a function of of that aforementioned density you're you're actually yeah. quite correct in in your assumption that it's kind of sludgy yeah um not easily uh not not easily splashed but also viscous enough to move through on on stilts all right or in full gold-plated diving gear which exists in particular cases yeah Okay, so it, it might, you know, so we we don't necessarily know how it originally started, but did it like come from the ocean up, or did literally was it everywhere and slid as much as it could down to the oceans and acidified the oceans? Definitely the latter. Okay, it's described at times as kind of a wave that consumed the world. Okay, it appeared one fateful day um, around our time. 600 700 ad mm-hmm. um that's that's when the uh quote-unquote timelines diverge okay because because mm-hmm. this is kind of an alternate history there are certain consistencies like you have venice you have paris you have istanbul mm-hmm. um those those cities do have counterparts but then it also veers more towards the, the fantastical you know large large deviations like where we might consider Britain to be uh, the core, uh, the, the the core city is Camelot, which is, I assume, somewhere between where London and Wales is. But that's kind of the the variation that you get in the setting, and that's what right. makes it fun to, to to play with. Right, and for our listeners, I'm glad you didn't call it a, a post-apocalyptic because. Because it to me it does not seem post-apocalyptic. Okay, it's it, this is this is a horrible world ecology in which everyone lives. But to me, to call it post-apocalyptic is to say that we in the United St- in the world are post-apocalyptic because there was a black plague in the 1600s. Right. This is this is simply you know the, the world moving on and accommodating the reality of the cream it's it's actually according to the timeline that's in your uh kickstarter it's a thousand years later yes with the events of of the game that start that's where you are so you truly have a a truly alien uh from our our point of view world you know with all of its various you know um societies and cities and things like that which is why i was interested in like things like how does it work because it seemed to me that what i would do assuming of course that you know once you get past the initial how do i survive this would be to start taking rock that was under the ground and taking it up and just basically dropping it on top of the e-cream and covering it over 
and then you would right. have and then you'd have a safe place on which to to live to build and to expand you know i i i think the idea of the of the raised roadways was kind of a stylus stylized point of view uh more than a necessity but i do like it so go ahead and 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 talk about how how the world is laid out how you have these giant cities and and these things that you call traverses as a, as a natural result of the acream covering the earth and leaving just a, just islands behind essentially uh humanity had to build up rather than out so people had to take stone like like you're saying and essentially plop it down into the acream for starters and then just start building up on top of that depending now the 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 books do go a little bit more in depth into this you do have more sophisticated methods of pit mining you can create you can create open pits within the acream itself the same way uh people used to create bridges or still do create bridges to a certain extent that was a quickly figured out technology um <laughs> out out of necessity because where else would a lot of the stone come from and so people then ended up using that stone to build up and then eventually once that was stable building out they built these traverses and while the raised nature of the traverses is definitely very stylistic you could also see it as indicative of the cultures uh, that have been dealing with the acream the most or care the most have the most ability to do so right like obviously these massive raised bridges are the, these raised traverses as we call them are are signifiers of a society of a culture that can do that now other cultures that might have less access to raw materials and manpower would probably build much lower to the ground and that's still a viable strategy and that is actually sometimes the case you have courtyards you have bridges you have walkways that are more or less at the acream level in certain places it's just doesn't make for great key art right um, <laughs> And these aren't like just you know, small little walkways or carts. These are like a hundred or more feet wide. These these bridges, these these traverses, as they're called, so so huge, so wide that they actually have you know they'll build like like inns and and even small cities, uh, you know, on the actual traverse uh, as part of its development. Yes, and that was. And that was actually a big part of kind of the development of these things, because as people expanded outwards, you you get these towns and and even cities out on the traverses as a result of the urban centers no longer being able to uh, maintain those populations. So you naturally have a diaspora of people out onto the traverses, kind of creating them, you know, kind of making them a uh, a rural area a countryside of sorts in a world that doesn't actually have the the space that we equate to the countryside yeah there's there's, there's nothing bucoic about <laughs> about the ukraine 
No. You look over the side of the, <laughs> and you see nothing but desolation as far as the eye can see. So, you know, if you if you have a if you have a nice little plant that you know a tree that's growing there is because someone potted it and put it on the traverse and brought it from someplace else. You didn't find right. it locally, and unless of course it, it was like really really fortunate in some way. Uh, the liquid death looks so beautiful this morning. Yes, and the smell. What does this smell mm. like? Oh, man. So that's actually an answer I don't have. Um, because it, we can talk a lot about the smell of the cities, the workshops, the sweatshops, the, the coal, the, all, all of this, the smoke, the smog, the unwashed bodies. We, we, can, we can talk about the smells of, of the people and the cities of a industrializing world. We can't really talk about the smell of the ever-present death threat, right? It's not described. It's in, indescribable in, in some ways. I mean, my, in my mind, it would be almost maybe metallic. Okay. Um, but it would also be one of those things that's so ever-present, you eventually go nose-blind to it. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a fair, that's a fair assessment. It's just, it's just like everybody's everybody's home water tastes like normal water until they go somewhere else. And it's like, what is this weird stuff that I'm drinking? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, especially because considering, as you said, it's pretty inert except for its, uh, its, its breaking down ability. It doesn't move around. It just, so it doesn't like, you know, leach off into the air and such. So, okay. It, uh, it, it does a little bit, actually. Yeah. Uh, Okay. It does. It is mentioned uh, that there are cream fumes, um, and the the art we have of the Stiltwalker, at least in the starter set, they are wearing gas masks. Okay. That is fairly important. Like the cream itself, the fumes don't go far. They are relatively. They don't really stray too far from the cream before being dispersed by the air, but they are a factor in certain cases. Okay. So again, going back to your start, you know, your, uh, and by the way, everybody can download their, their quick start, which gives you a really, it's beautiful. I mean, the artwork in it is really nice and evocative, just really, really well done as far as, you know, just a, a basic, you know, looking at the game and, and, and some idea of the societies. There, uh, the societies, is, would you say that it is um, very class-based? societies oh heavily class-based okay. um you you have a situation similar to the u.s gilded age or really you know dickensian england where you have this vast divide before between the wealthy and the poor most mm -hmm. people work in sweatshops or eke out some other you know meager working class life and then you know all of that ultimately benefits the people in positions of power, whether it's within government ministries or the trade concerns or the scientific lodges. Yeah, and you also, and, and they also mentioned the fact that because they just kind of did the standard, you know, science gone amuck is what caused all this way back in the by and by. So therefore, it must be strongly controlled so much so that it essentially becomes guilds and only only you know this science is balkanized and only certain people who are members of their 
their lodges, as they, they called them, can even get this kind of information to, to allow them to do any kind of research whatsoever. Yes, that's kind of exactly what happened. There are yeah. many theories as to what caused the Akrim, and one of the main ones that led to the formation of the lodges is that it was some type of science gone amok. And so they live in this ever-present fear of that happening again. Well, the the common people, the people that don't know better, live in that fear. Now, the people in charge of the lodges, I suspect, are pretty happy with how things are. And why would they ever want that to be changed? Right. They have wealth, they have power. And they now have the um, cachet of saying, we are the protection against it ever happening again so don't mess with us you know we're your saviors we're your protectors so yeah you 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 get this kind of snobbishness like you know i am a you know i i i am a a guild scientist that you know i know things that you just couldn't even understand so just shut up and listen to what i have to say to you so it's scientific elitism run amok. Oh, very much Correct. so. Correct, yeah. I don't know about yeah. the running amok, though, because, like I say, they're all very close to their, their chests on pretty much everything, which is why right. one of my questions to you was is that if the guilds control tech, you know, uh, well, first of all, is that this society, from what I could tell from the quick start, it seems very uh, stagnant. It's, it's very unchanging. You know, it is what it is. And except for like small sorties, you know, between uh, these island nations, it, it seems like society does not change hardly at all. So therefore, how would the GM, if they wanted to introduce, you know, new technology, how would they even go about doing that? Well, I'm I'm a big fan of saying once you have the book, it's your world. I can't tell you how to play the game and how to tailor anything, really. And so it's it's really only as limited as your imagination. But from a more guided perspective, like from what's already there, that's where kind of the crux of gameplay comes from, right? We have growing unrest. We have tension. The world is not so much stagnant as it is a gunpowder keg just waiting to blow you have unions fighting against the the owners against these massive trade concerns um that seek to control you know the production of everything you have entire secret societies of renegade scientists continuing the search for knowledge and for for technological process under the noses and and away from the scientific lodges who provides their support? Nobody. And that's the issue. They don't get support. They have to build it grassroots as they can. They could go through criminal guilds, which exist as well, um, to gain funding. They could go out and do normal work and save and, and, and sequester savings away to, to help fund, fund that. Or they can and they can find each other and they can start working together to try to upend the political uh, world that that currently is uh, essentially like that's all of these things exist. The world is indeed stagnant, but it is not unchangeable. It exists kind of as a staging point 
for the types of adventures that the players might encounter and for the types of things the players might want to do. I'm almost sensing sort of a cold war going on between all these various factions. And it's like you said, a powder cake. It's just going to take one event, a guild or a lodge is going to do that one thing and boom. That's what I'm getting from this. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and Everybody's and so walking that razor's edge because nobody wants to set stuff off. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's up to the uh, the person ga- running the game, the game master, to kind of decide. And, and also, of course, the players, right? You're, you're probably going to listen to your players. What are they interested in focusing on where that first domino is going to fall? Hmm. Yeah, to me, it's... it's uh looking at revolutions that have occurred in the in the last century uh usually when the middle class if such exists in uh ecream when the middle class is ready for change that's when change actually happens right and that's kind of like that's kind of that varies uh from city to city really right but it's considered to be again walking that razor's edge could there be an event that pushes the the middle class to decide okay now's the time for revolution or could the change come from some in, internal struggle could somebody manage to screw things up so badly for a certain lodge that they have no choice but to make a dis- change in direction mm-hmm. there's there's various avenues that the players can investigate and there's various ways that things can can happen and while we talk about story structure and what kind of things can be investigated, talked about in a cream and, and, and some of the ways you can set those things up. It's ultimately up to the different groups, the, the groups that play this game to decide where they want to take the world. Thank you for your time and, and giving us insight to all this, sir. Yeah, we appre- we appreciate you being here and uh, telling us all about Ecream, and we are we wish you the best and hope to hear more from you as uh, the time goes on because you now have our email addresses and such, and I'm signed up, so I'll be hearing about it when 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 you guys do that. So, and for all of our listeners, we hope that you will uh, join us in uh, wishing Ian the best and uh, and 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 Ecream success in the American market. And we'll have more uh, strange and unusual things uh, that's out there in the uh, gamosphere. Uh, But you'll have to wait until next week. So until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts, is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license, no commercial reproduction, and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.